can find it on any street in America. The storybook romance between the star athlete and the head cheerleader. Who had a fairy tale wedding and then moved into their dream home. He is now climbing the corporate ladder and she stayed home to raise their children. Everything was perfect. Or was it? In the Bible, King Solomon is referred to as the wisest man who ever lived. Listen what King Solomon had to say about relationships in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He said, two people are better than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Life is meant to be lived in the context of relationships. God created man and said it's not good for mankind to be alone. God doesn't desire for anyone to be alone and for all of us to experience in life relationships. You know, our relationship with God really influences and determines the success or failure of other relationships in our life. Over the last few weeks, primarily, we've been talking about the marriage relationship, the husband-wife relationship. You know, when a marriage works really well, life seems to make more sense. But on the other hand, when it doesn't, when it's constant conflict, when it's just day after day of just hoping you get through the next day, Life seems to not make a lot of sense. We're in the last week of a series called Love Affair. And I've talked about how marriage was instituted by God between a man and a woman. And God meant for that marriage to be a covenant. But today, all people want to hear about are contracts. You know, the difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract says, if you uphold your end of the bargain, then I'm going to uphold my end of the bargain. A contract says there's some loopholes in that thing that if you goof up in any way, I'm out. There might even be some out clauses for me in a contract. Too many people enter into marriage like it's a contract rather than the way God designed it to be a covenant, a promise, a commitment made between a man and a woman to be kept for all of life. Unfortunately, because we are humans and we mess up and we're tempted and humans make huge mistakes, not all covenants are kept throughout life. That's why a while back I thought this would be a great time to do a series on love affair. 
where we talk about how to keep an affair out of our marriage and how to have the right kind of an affair. And if you're single, how to plan for that right kind of affair and how to nurture that right kind of relationship with God. Stats say that as many as 80% of marriages will experience infidelity. 80% of marriages will experience an affair. I don't want anybody in this room, in this world, to have to be one of those 80%. We talked one week about how a relationship is something that takes work. It takes dedication. It takes some commitment to make a relationship work. And the issues you deal with in your marriage and relationships may not be the same as the issues other people deal with, but the ultimate relationship that can make all of those make sense is the relationship with God. Last week, if you were here, I talked about King David and how King David lived his life on the ledge, and because he lived on the ledge, he fell off and he committed adultery, and then murder, and then lying, and then this huge cover-up where if David would have been away from the ledge and had some boundaries in his life that said, here are some things I'm just not going to do. He would have been far enough away from the ledge. So when he did make a mistake, like all humans do, he wouldn't have plummeted to the bottom. Not too long ago, I was watching Dr. Phil. Well, I wasn't watching. I I saw Dr. Phil. That's a better way to put it. I saw Dr. Phil. I was channel surfing, and and whatever he said just kind of caught my attention. And and so I was watching the show, and he was giving this couple advice, you know, you shouldn't do that, and you ought to do this, you know, the way he does, and thinks he knows something about everything. And he was telling them what to do to make their marriage whole and to make their marriage better and to make their relationship work. And, and most of it was good advice. But I remember thinking, you're leaving a big part out, Phil. You're forgetting one big factor. You're forgetting God. You're forgetting that these people aren't in, in some kind of a contract that one can get out because of this and one get out because of that. These people are in a covenant instituted by God. And until he sees it as that, his advice is not going to be 100%. So I thought in this series, why not end it up with talking to a professional, talking to someone who knows about the ins and outs and has experience So I've invited Bill Venable, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist in Raleigh, has a practice and has helped heal many, many marriages and helped a lot of people through a lot of issues. So today, Bill and I are just going to sit up here. Bill, come on up. I'm just going to ask him a few questions. So sit back, take this in, take some notes, because this guy is full of knowledge. Even if you're single, I've said this every week, if you're single going, Okay, thank God, the last week on marriage, the last time I have to listen to this, listen to what Bill has to say, because it really can make your marriage stronger. If you're going through a difficult issue, it can help you work through that. If you're single, it can show you what a true godly relationship is supposed to be like. Bill, thanks for being here. Thanks for getting your clock set forward just to the right hour. I set my clock forward without realizing it's a new clock, and it set itself forward, too, at 3, 2 a.m. So, <laughs> so I got up really early today. <laughs> so thanks for being here, Bill. Bill has a, uh, works at a practice called A Time to Heal, and you can check all that out at atimetoheal.com. 
Bill, the first thing I want to ask you is, what does a healthy marriage look like? So many people go through life not ever realizing or maybe never seeing a healthy marriage. So let's just start off by telling everybody, what does a healthy marriage look like? I often think in analogies, and for some reason uh, I think in a gardening analogy, though I I really don't do much gardening, so I hope I get this right. Um, The first thing I think is needed is to have a fence or a boundary around the garden, to have a a fence around the marriage to keep out intruders. Intruders can be um, people, like seductive people, um, can be... Um, too much of something that's good, like too much of a hobby, um, can be TV or internet. Um, in-laws can be intruders. Um, sometimes even children. If there's too much of a overconnection with children, but not spending enough time just to um, put a fence around the marriage, so that can be a problem. And then inside the garden, um, rocks and weeds need to be pulled. So you think about the heart of a marriage. Um, unforgiveness can be a big weed that needs to be pulled out. Um, um, issues from family of origin that have not that the families we grew up in that have not been worked through those those need to be pulled and removed. Um, and and then the garden needs to be let's see what needs to be toiled, um, fertilized, planted, and so I like to look at that as the, the three areas of intimacy. And the first area of intimacy is um, the, the verbal, emotional, just being able to talk together deeply um, without throwing pots and pans at each other. In fact, I had this couple one time, they were throwing casserole dishes at each other, so that was, <laughs> was not good. Conflict is a good thing, actually. <laughs> So if you can, some of you don't believe this, conflict is a good thing. Marriage without conflict is boring. Some of you would like suborder. I know you have so much of it, but it's, the issue is how to handle the conflict. Um, that plus meeting emotional intimacy needs like support, respect, attention, affection, appreciation. I think the most couples love each other, but they mislove each other. Um, Example I can always think of is this one man had a real critical mom, so he had a real need for encouragement. So he would encourage his wife all the time, hoping that she would encourage him back, but she didn't know what he was trying to do. She didn't need encouragement, didn't want it, didn't give a flip about encouragement, so she never encouraged him. And then she had a real need for acts of service. She was kind of a perfectionist, and so she would make these elaborate meals hoping that he would see all that she did, and so he would fix things around the house. But he wasn't a fix-it guy, and he didn't know how to do that. I mean, he's a millionaire, but he didn't know how to fix things, so they just missed each other for years, and in the end, um, the unthinkable thing happened, the thing he prided himself he would never do, and they came, ended up in our office. And so, the, um, so correctly loving, figuring out, how the other person needs to be loved. So that's like one whole area of emotion, of these three areas of intimacy, one area. The second area is couples that pray with and for each other. Um, Most Christian couples do not pray with and for each other on a regular basis, period. So I always encourage people, why don't you be the minority? 
In fact, I was telling others to pray with each other when I wasn't doing it myself. I forgot to share that. Said so my hypocrisy, my hypocrisy was just growing just larger and larger. And I wanted to, but I get distracted, or I was too proud, or I was too tired. And what are all the reasons? So finally, I thought I've got to do this. I just can't keep telling people. And uh, um, and then I, I saw benefit from it. Um, and just making it simple, you know, when, when wives say, well, won't you pray with me, that feels like nagging. So when husbands initiate, normal Christian wives actually appreciate that. Um, it's an eight-word question, you know, first name, like Susan. Susan, what can I pray for you for? Eight words, yeah. Um, and just to make it simple and talk. And prayer... And the third area of intimacy, so first is talking together, meeting emotional intimacy needs. Second is couples praying with and for each other on a regular basis. And the third area is, is sex. And that's important in marriage. In fact, when couples pray together, um, there's statistical data that it improves their sex life. There you go. So, there you go. So one guy, <laughs> right, the one guy actually said to me, he said, well, man, we're going to pray all the time. Um, you know, after first service, you know, I was like, let the praying begin, you know. So I, I would imagine there's going to be more prayer among LifePoint people tonight than... Uh, but, you know, what kind of statisticians sit around and develop in a test like that? Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's interesting, but I was like, how can you get people to pray? And he just answered the question, so... <laughs> When is it time to come see you or to come and get some help? When, when does a couple finally say, okay, we cannot do this on our own, but we need to go seek some help? Um, occasionally, a couple will come in before things get really bad, and I really like meeting with those people. That's, that's great. Um, but I like meeting with the others, too. But mo- most people come in as the last. This is, you know, you're, you're our last chance or something, and... and um, so the last result often. Why is it that some marriages, you look at them and you say, that is a healthy relationship. And then you look at others and they seem to be in conflict all the time, just barely getting by. Why does it just seem to work it's so easily for some and then for others it's just a rocky road all the time? I think one is, is personality. If you have two people that are strong-willed, and they're married, that didn't mean they weren't supposed to get married. They're, they're just going to, it's going to be a more lively marriage. And, but that's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? But, but because they're strong-willed, um, the conflict is going to be more. And if they don't learn how to deal with it, then it's going to be a, a problem. And then secondly, just the more people work through their issues, problems, hurts, um, sins, with the Lord on their own before they get into a relationship, then the more they're able to work out um, difficulties in, in marriage. So. This is a two-part question. Number one, is restoration in a marriage truly possible? And is it possible for two people to fall back in love with each other? Uh, yes and yes. I think that on the, on the second part, the, the, it's, that's all about the heart, I think. You know, some people say, I just I don't have any desire for this person. It's, it's just not going to work. I can't. And I, I challenge them to let the Lord to begin to change their hearts. 
and um, to see what he can do. And when they're willing, then, then often things will begin to happen if, if certain things are in place. But I've, I've seen it happen before. I've even seen people that got you know, divorced and then later remarried um, to the same people, to the same persons, because they were able to work it out. So it really can. There's probably people in here who are not married, uh, maybe engaged, maybe getting ready to get married. What is a must-do for couples that are getting ready to take those vows, walk down the aisle, first time, second time, either one, but what's a must-do for them? Um, so one humorous answer is that they, each person would have psych testing so they could find out all the pathologies of your future spouse and decide whether you want to marry them. But. But that, I don't think that necessarily has to happen. That uh, having a, a good premarital inventory is a really good one. And so you can honestly look at what, you, what's, what comes out of the inventory, which is not a test, so you can't fail it. Um, and then to experience that person in a number of different environments, not just going out alone and then coming back alone, but around each other's families and each other's friends and even in... Even traveling and experiencing each other together and see how that works. It seems old-fashioned today to say uh, to two people you need to stay sexually pure before you get married, whether that's your first or second marriage or third. Uh, But do you see that sex outside of marriage, do you see it really having an impact on a relationship after they're married if they were sexually active before? Yes, it does. Um, even one of my coworkers, Paula Reinhardt, wrote a book called Sex and the Soul of a Woman, and it's mostly about women, but it comes out of just story after story of, of her talking to other women and say, I wish I hadn't have done that, and the effect it had upon them. Now, there's still forgiveness, and so God can can really bring healing and forgiveness, but when and the cart's before the horse. It, it has a way of confusing and making the relationship, um, taking it in, in wrong. I don't know how to say it. it. It has a way of messing the heart up in some ways. Do you think there's any situation that would justify two people cohabitating, living together before they entered in the covenant of marriage? I would say no. A lot of couples do it out of financial reasons. It's actually more popular today for couples to cohabitate, especially in the, in the those are in the 20s. Um, before, it's more common now they cohabitate than not cohabitate before marriage. And I guess I would say if you're cohabitating, um, I hope you're in the 15% because only 15% of those will make it. The other 85% will either um, break up or they get married and divorced. And so um, it just might be one, one way of showing that it's, it's, not, it's not really the best of ideas. In today's culture, especially now, I, divorce is, you know, it's a common thing. You know, just uh, my parents were divorced, and probably if we went around the room, most people somewhere in their family, there's a divorce. What would you say to a child, a teenager, or you know, a, a member of the family that is in the middle of this—you know, their parents are divorcing their their brother, or whatever. What would you say to those people, especially the children? 
I don't meet a lot with children, but I would, you know, the first three things I would say, well, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. Um, and then I would make sure, um, if, if you're actually a parent of one of those children, I'd actually look out for the really quiet ones, because those are the ones I would be most concerned about. Those are acting out and upset or verbalizing, okay. You know, but they're the ones that are taking all your attention, but the quiet ones, and I'd try to get them in to, to someone to talk to. It could be a, you know, a youth leader of the, of the same sex, or it could be a counselor, just someone that they can talk to. Do you think divorce is ever the right decision in a relationship? Yes. Um, there can be a level of physical abuse that... Um, and just that needs to happen. Sometimes a, sometimes a severe emotional abuse. I want to be real careful about that. Very careful about that. Um, but there, there can be that is so bad that there, and 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 if it, uh, the abuser is not cooperating and working on things, then it, that can happen. Though I, you know, I rarely recommend separation, and um, actually. Rarely, if ever, recommend divorce, I can think of. I think a lot of people may not approach Christians or approach a Christian-based or religious-based person to give advice because oftentimes the advice is, well, just pray about it. Just pray about it. Everything's going to be okay. And and then they've prayed and nothing happened. It's still bad. So what would you say to somebody who they've prayed about it, they're, they're walking close with God, and it's still all falling apart. Can I pray about that? Back to you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> With your wife. Okay, I'll get back to you. Uh, I, I guess the the analogy of looking for a job. Um, one person, two people are looking for a job. One person prays and prays and prays, and unbelievable praying. They're just in communion with God, and then you know, a few weeks or months go by, and they're upset because they don't have a job, but they never actually put a resume out. Never actually went online to um, go to monster.com. The other person networked with a bunch of people. He got his resume out. And he, he just really worked hard at it. And eventually um, he got a job and then complained later to God, well, why didn't, I don't really like this job. And, but he never really prayed about it. So I think both are important to, to really... Um, so yeah, definitely pray, but then to talk to other people. You know, that there's a reason why there's the body of Christ. There's a reason why there's people that to be in community to talk with. So. This series over the last three weeks uh, could have been difficult for maybe some singles, and maybe they could have felt like, well, what does that have to do with me? What would you say to uh, single people who, or a single person who's just desperately wanting to get married, just they desperately want to spend their lives with somebody else, and it, it, they just want so bad to find that right person and get married. Well, if there's a desire to get married, to get married that's good. That's good. Go, go out and do that. I know that's just not that simple in this day and time, but the word desperate kind of would ring up a red flag for me if, if and I would wonder, I would want to talk to that person and say, do you have a level of contentment being alone? And can you be alone? Is there a balance in being alone and with other people? Sometimes a desperate could be a level of 
codependency, overused counseling word, sorry about that, but where there's just a need to find another person to, um, if we use the word complete them, so I go with the Jerry Maguire movie, talked about the, what's the theme, if everyone watched that, the Jerry Maguire, the, the theme for the men was um, show me the money, right? and the theme for the women was um, he complete, what is it, you complete me, and when, you know, when he said that, all the women went, oh, <laughs> But biblically, I don't, I don't think that's right. We're to look to a person to complete you. I think we need to do the hard work with the Lord to become whole. And then in God's economy, two holes make a whole. Which doesn't sound like good math, but, but he, he created it. So I'm not going to... Um, two halves don't make a whole in his economy. So. Last question is... You know, because we live in a world where divorce is common and, and broken marriages are, are common, uh, what would you say to someone who's starting over, either after a breakup in a dating relationship or after a marriage has ended? What advice uh, would you give them to bring all that into perspective? I mean, could you add someone whose spouse has died? Mm-hmm. Maybe, and that's number one: take your time. Um, the rebounding thing generally doesn't work because as people rebound and rebound and rebound um, divorce experts say for every four years you're married take one year off out of being in a relationship some people start counting that out oh my gosh I don't know how, that's so much time to they're trying to it's not a demand it's just a guideline they're trying to protect against people um jumping back in and they want people to work just take their time to work through their own issues to get healing and to have a balance i think it's important to have a a balance of being in community being with friends and then being alone and being content with that and 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 having a kind of a healthy balance there well thank you bill for your insight and your wisdom and being willing to come here today and and share with us So what are the next steps? What if over the last few weeks something's been said or done or you've thought of something? What are the next steps that you could take to make sure that you have the right kind of love affair, the one with your spouse, the one with your spouse-to-be, the one with God? What are some steps you can take? Maybe after today you're thinking about some issues in your life and you need to get a babysitter and you need to go out with your spouse, your husband, your wife, you could look them in the eye and say, here's something I just need to tell you. Or maybe confess. Maybe you need to go see Bill. Maybe you need to go see somebody like that that can, that can help you as a couple work through whatever the issues are because it can be saved. It can be salvaged. You just heard from a professional that two people can and have fallen back in love with each other. Rekindle that passion that flame and that spark. I know that a series like this called Love Affair, where we're talking about infidelity, where we're talking about failed marriages, moral failures, I know that may have opened up some old wounds for people. I know it may have opened up something that that you've done or your spouse or former spouse has done, and, and maybe it kind of put some salt in an old wound. You need to know that was never the intention 
The intention of going through a series called Love Affair was to keep every person out of that 80%. And if all of this opened up old wounds, made single people uncomfortable, made people who were divorced angry again, if all that happened and one marriage is saved from pain, one family is saved from being broken apart, then it was worth every week of the last four weeks to share about how we can have better marriages, stronger relationships, and we can make sure that we're not part of that 80%. May your marriage always be the covenant that God desired for it to be. 